Welcome to Cases and Controversies, a Supreme Court podcast by Bloomberg Law. I'm Kimberly Robinson. And I'm Jordan Rubin. This is your sneak peek episode for the week of October 31st, when the justices will return to the bench to hear five cases, two of which are the high-profile challenges to Harvard and the University of North Carolina's affirmative action programs. But before we jump into those cases and the other ones that the justices are going to hear, we have a couple of things we wanted to talk about. Most importantly, Jordan, we got some really big news out of the SCOTUS world. Tell us about RBG. I knew that you were going to say that was the biggest (laughs) news of the week. I've been waiting (laughs) to talk about this. So I hope everyone's uh, sitting down when they hear this. But the notorious RBG is going to be on a stamp. And for our younger listeners, a stamp is like when you take an email and you print it out and you send it like in the real world instead of electronically because you like doing old kind of stuff. Well, that was that was some some big news. Thanks for thanks for letting us know about that. Yeah, it's going to be in the 2023 rollout from USPS. We'll also be featuring Toni Morrison, the Smoky Mountains pinatas and some other new stamps that you all just have to wait to see is this real are you that's real i mean that's what pinatas. the postal service is saying if you trust that kind of thing <laughs> all right well there was some other news justice alito um as justices do went out into the wild and gave a speech this one at the heritage foundation now justice alito when he's been giving speeches lately he's um been pretty newsworthy Um, I think we've written a story out of every one of his speeches lately, and this one did not disappoint. Was there anything that stuck out to you, Jordan, in particular? So I have to admit, I did not watch Justice Alito's speech, but the one nugget that I did see come out is how he talked about how the leak in Dobbs made the justices targets for assassination. That's one thing that stood out to me. I don't know if there were other things that stood out to you from it if you actually watched it or heard more about it. Well, on the leak investigation, I think um, as I was listening to him, it seemed almost like they still haven't gotten to the bottom of who's responsible for the leak. Yeah, there's that aspect too. And I can understand why Alito would want to frame it that way. Obviously, there was the attempt or whatever the charge is against the person who went to Justice Kavanaugh's house or near their house, and there's charges pending in that. But I guess I don't totally understand the connection between saying it's the leak that made the justices potential targets for assassination, because the extent that what was in the leak made people upset, what made them upset was what actually wound up coming out in the substance of the opinion which was the same as the leaked opinion. You know what I'm saying? Well, didn't Justice Alito in his speech, I think he sort of addressed that by saying that he was, you know, people were kind of hoping to take out uh, some of the people who were presumed to be in the majority before the majority opinion came out. Um, I don't know how true that is, but that, that was his reasoning, at least. Yeah. And I mean, we haven't heard anything besides the Kavanaugh situation, but maybe there's more that Alito knows that he didn't share in the speech. Well, there have been a, a few high-profile events happening at the Supreme Court themselves, which, um, yeah, we haven't really talked a lot or heard a lot about, but there have been some incidents um, down at 1 First Street. So, And, of course, they had that 
fencing up for a long time around the court, um, which I assume was for security reasons, since every time we would ask about it, the PIO would say, we do not discuss security matters with the press. Right. Um, So the other thing that stood out to me about Alito's speech was this, uh, he seemed to weigh into this dispute between uh, what was formerly between Kagan and Justice John Roberts about the legitimacy of the court. Um, So Justice Kagan, in a series of speeches, has sort of suggested that the Supreme Court is no longer acting like a court. Um, It's, you know, doing things like overturning precedent, deciding more than it's supposed to decide, and in her latest speech, she repeated that, saying that, you know, if every single time one side is always winning, um, then that's going to call into question, you know, what what the Supreme Court is doing. Are they really doing law or are they doing politics, as she likes to put it? But John Roberts has pushed back on that. And then Alito did in his speech saying that it crosses a line whenever, you know, justices, you know, impugn the character of the other justices. He seems like he's continuing this issue, though, by raising it. No, I mean, if it really was something that they were above or outside of, maybe he wouldn't kind of jump into it. But it seems like, I mean, we're talking about this right now, right? And so whether what he's saying makes sense or not, I mean, it doesn't, but sort of keeping this uh, issue in the spotlight. So you can tell, if nothing else, that it does bother him, despite being in this 6-3 majority, you can get all of the rulings you want. But if people aren't enjoying them at the same time, your feelings can still get hurt. So, Kimberly, we also got some shadow docket action on some nationally significant matters. You want to fill us in? We did. And so we I'm thinking about two shadow docket rulings or at least temporary rulings that involved the 2020 presidential election. Now, both cases involve what are known as administrative stays, uh, where one justice known as the circuit justice, who's sort of responsible for fielding emergency applications from different circuits all over the country, uh, they will sort of stay the lower court matter uh, just while the litigation is sort of working its way through the Supreme Court. So that's what happened in both of these cases. It's likely that in both of the cases, that's not going to be the final say. I mean, right there in the order, it anticipates that there will be another order. Um, And it's likely in both of these cases, given kind of their high profile nature, uh, that the matter is going to be referred to the full Supreme Court. So what are we dealing with here? Well, in the most recent case, Justice Kagan temporarily blocked a subpoena from the January 6th committee for phone and text records from the head of the Arizona Republican Party, Kelly Ward. Now, Ward is saying that the subpoena violates her free right to political association. Um, I suspect this may not be the last time we hear about January 6th subpoenas, and that's because the committee recently subpoenaed former President Donald Trump. Uh, There already appears to be some back and forth about that testimony between the president's lawyers and the committee. But we'll see. I could easily see this one coming up to the court on separation of powers and or executive privilege. So stay tuned. Uh, The second case involves the uh, grand jury out of Georgia that is investigating whether Donald Trump and his supporters illegally tried to overturn Uh, the president's election loss. So this one comes from Justice Thomas, who said that Lindsey Graham didn't have to testify uh, in the grand jury while the court considers whether or not his testimony would be protected by the speech and debate clause. That, of course, is the clause that protects lawmakers while they're doing their official duties. So 
One interesting tidbit I did take out of Thomas's administrative stay, even though it's a temporary stay and everybody can just calm down for one minute, um, is that, you know, this involves the attempts to overturn the election, which, of course, we've heard that Ginny Thomas was involved in, perhaps not in Georgia, but in other places. She did already give her testimony to the January 6th committee. But here, you know, Thomas does not indicate that he's going to recuse in this case. And I suspect he's not going to in any of these cases. So Right, because when we saw that order from Thomas come out, you saw people freaking out about it, right? Part of that is maybe somewhat of a misunderstanding of the court's opaque rules, which people could be somewhat forgiven for not understanding readily. But the issue that you're raising, though, compounds the issue, because when you have Thomas who's being involved and there's this potential appearance of impropriety, it can take what's a routine type of order and make it into a bigger issue than what it is. So that kind of just highlights what you're saying in terms of, again, this ongoing issue of Thomas not recusing or not even making any type of statement about his involvement in these cases that we've seen. Yeah, I do feel like a statement just explaining, you know, it's it's not typical, but it's not totally unheard of for a justice mm-hmm. to sort of write. There was that one from Justice Scalia about um, his involvement in a case involving uh, then Vice President Dick Cheney, um, who they had gone hunting a few times together. And he sort of laid out why it is that he didn't recuse, you know, whether or not you agreed with his reasoning. It's like, OK, at least he explained it. So I don't know. I don't know that I've ever heard that a justice has done it sort of on their own without being asked formally to recuse. And I mean, good luck to the advocate that asked Justice Thomas to recuse. So, Kimberly, Monday, of course, is Halloween, first and foremost. The court is also going to be hearing one of the biggest cases of the term, combined cases. What are we hearing? Right. I guess this is a sneak peek episode. We should probably give people a sneak peek. All right. So uh, the court is going to kick off its November sitting in October uh, with the high profile affirmative action cases. These are two cases, one against Harvard and one against the University of North Carolina. The, both challenges are brought by the group Students for Fair Admissions, which is a group uh, spearheaded by Edward Blum to challenge affirmative action programs. Now, Blum has been behind um, many Supreme Court cases that sort of argue for a colorblind view of the Constitution. So this is the latest in that installment. SFFA here is arguing that affirmative action programs unconstitutionally discriminate against Asian American applicants. And the questions presented here are really novel in that they outright ask the Supreme Court to overturn 40 years of precedent, saying that universities can use race in a limited way to create a diverse student body. Now, Previous challenges, just like the Fisher cases that we saw from a few terms ago, were a lot narrower. They just argued that the school had used race too much. Um, Here, the argument is that they can't use it at all. Now, uh, supporters of affirmative action programs say the history of the 14th Amendment shows that equal protection was not meant to be race neutral, but instead was meant to allow governments to pass laws to protect freed slaves. Um, And they're really sort of embracing originalism. Uh, And of course, this is something that we saw from Justice Jackson early on in her tenure on the court in the Alabama Voting Rights Act case. And it's something that there are elements of in the Indian Child Welfare Act case that we previewed last week. So sort of already have a taste of what arguments might look like, except that they're going to be 17 hours long. 
Um, maybe not 17. They're, they're going to be six lawyers pre- presenting um, in these two cases. I don't know. Arguments are already scheduled for two hours and 40 minutes. I just, I'm trying to figure out how to plan for eating <laughs> at the court. I know this is probably not a problem a lot of you are going to have, but. Well, think about the Solicitor General who's going to be arguing two cases back to back, right? It's going to be a long morning into the afternoon for her. At least one person, though, Jordan, will get a break, and that's Justice Jackson, who is recused from the Harvard case. So she'll just sit through the seven-hour-long University of North Carolina case, and then, you know, we'll miss the next 17 hours. And remind us, Kimberly, why is she recused? Well, you know, she did go to Harvard, um, but that's not the reason. Of course, a lot of people would be recused, and a lot of the attorneys would seem to be conflicted out um, if just going to Harvard were the thing that were the basis of her recusal. But she actually sat on Harvard's Board of Overseers, which was considering sort of this affirmative action program. Uh, And so, in her confirmation hearing, she said she intended to recuse from this case. So this is not new, though. So we saw this from the Supreme Court a couple of terms ago when Justice Sotomayor uh, missed a conflict in a voting case. And the justices just decoupled the cases. They heard them separately, but they sort of just issued one opinion that essentially you know, resolved both disputes though technically Sotomayor was not involved in one of them. All right, Jordan, then Tuesday is criminal day at the court. Tell oh us boy. what's going on. It really is. I got to warn you, there's a couple of thick cases coming up, so you <laughs> might want to buckle in or tune out or whatever hearing that makes you want to do. So two cases. First one is Jones against Hendricks. In the first case, Jones, remember in the last sitting, we had the Rodney Reed case where the innocence issue lurked in the background of a technical case. We see that a bit in the Jones case as well, but it's a different type of innocence, legal innocence. Recall back in 2019, the Supreme Court decided a gun possession case. It said the government has to prove not just that a person knew they possessed a gun, but that they knew they weren't allowed to, like for being a felon. Jones had that type of gun conviction before 2019, and he previously filed a post-conviction motion before that Supreme Court ruling. So the issue now is whether there's a mechanism that Jones can use to get relief as a federal prisoner. He wants the court to say that he can use something called the saving clause, and that clause can be invoked when a regular post-conviction motion is inadequate or ineffective for challenging detention. Jones says that's the case here, but the Eighth Circuit rejected him, and we have this interesting situation at the argument where DOJ is opposing Jones, but only agreeing with the circuit's bottom line, not its reasoning. So we'll have an amicus arguing in defense of the Eighth Circuit in addition to DOJ. You know what's interesting about that amicus appointment is typically the justices appoint um, somebody who is going to be their first argument. Am I correct that this time they appointed Morgan Ratner, who was in the Solicitor General's office, so has argued a fair number of cases. That's right. I mean, it's not a, it's not a hard and fast rule. We've seen them in really high profile cases. You know, they they even appointed Paul Clement, who was not a, a, new, a first timer by any means. But this doesn't seem to have the same kind of splash. Yeah, that's true. And it's not like these cases where appointments come up are necessarily simple. I don't know if it's owing to the complexity here, but mm. not a super clear reason that I can see from the face of it, like you're suggesting. So I don't have a ready answer for that either. But always interesting to see when they split up the argument that way. And then number two case, 
if yes, you've made it this far. Yes, we're almost done with Tuesday. Okay. Yes. Okay. Cruz against Arizona. And this is another post-conviction case with intervening Supreme Court precedent. John Cruz was convicted of capital murder in Arizona, but he wasn't allowed to tell the jury that he wouldn't have been eligible for parole if they sentenced him to life. That seemed to contradict a 1994 Supreme Court ruling called Simmons, which basically said that what happened in Cruz's case isn't allowed. But still, the Arizona Supreme Court said Simmons didn't apply in Arizona. And after that, the U.S. Supreme Court in a 2016 case said Simmons does apply, so Cruz filed a state post-conviction motion. But the problem he ran into there is that in Arizona, a defendant generally can't raise an issue on post-conviction review that he could have raised on his first round of appeals. Making this even more complicated is that a (laughs) state procedural rule has an exception to that, which says that a defendant can raise a challenge when there's a significant change in the law. Now, you might be thinking that there was a significant change between those two rulings, but the Arizona State Supreme Court said that that 2016 U.S. Supreme Court ruling wasn't a significant change. So now we have Cruz appealing to the U.S. Supreme Court, trying to get the justices to reverse Arizona on the issue again, like they did in 2016. And specifically, just to make it super technical on the back end of this for anyone who's still with me, the justices are going to be considering whether that state procedural rule is an adequate and independent state law ground for the judgment. And that is Tuesday. But there is actually one more case, Kimberly, (laughs) on Wednesday for anyone who's still with us, mercifully. Right. So on Wednesday, there's just one case, Bittner versus United States. This is a case about the Bank Secrecy Act, which requires U.S. citizens who own foreign bank accounts to file annual reports if their bank accounts are more than $10,000. So Alexandru Bittner says he didn't know he had to file these reports. And so, you know what? He didn't. Uh, The question is whether or not he'll have to pay fines of $50,000 or $2.72 million, which is a pretty big deal, I guess. Um, To figure that out, the Supreme Court must decide whether the $10,000 penalty per violation applies to each annual report that wasn't filed, no matter how many bank accounts are on there, or if each individual bank account, here we're talking about 272, Uh, count as a separate violation subject to the $10,000 fine. So um, that's Bittner, and that's going to do it for the first week of the November sitting, which starts in October, which I love to say. Spooky. Spooky. What are you going to be for Halloween, Kimberly? Um, Suburban mom. Well, you took mine. Now I need to change (laughs) it, so I'll have to get back to you on the next episode. All right. I feel like that should do it. You can follow along with all the latest Supreme Court news at news.bloomberglaw.com. Thanks for listening. An individual's race should not be used to help him or harm him in his life's endeavors. A pair of lawsuits has made its way to the Supreme Court, and the decision could dramatically change just who gets into which college. Bloom is effectively using the Asian community as pawns. Every lawsuit needs a villain. To mask an anti-Black and anti-Latino agenda. Does this demoralize me? No, it doesn't demoralize me. This season on Uncommon Law, we'll explore the arguments and the people driving this latest battle over affirmative action. Can the Constitution be used to remedy society's ills? I'm the only person in class who has to raise my hand and say, okay, well, actually, here's how this affects people that look like me. Does the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause prohibit 
all discrimination based on race? You let somebody in because of their race, you're keeping somebody else out because of their race. There might have been two or three Latinos, including me. And so somehow that's too much, somehow that goes too far. It's hard not to take that very personally. Coming October 25th, part one of a three-part series on affirmative action. What's being decided is whether black and brown people are going to be excluded in significant numbers. Only on Uncommon Law from Bloomberg Industry Group.